for the last few weeks, I have been trying to process how to think about some of the the news that we've seen. I've I've reached out to some former colleagues. I've talked to them, and and frankly, I've had conversations outside of the context of this this podcast. And I it it hasn't felt great to talk about specifically the violence at the Capitol and how people are dealing with it. Uh, in a, in a year and change where we're we've all been kind of processing a lot of trauma together. Uh, I feel like I'm a little too close to this and I wasn't able to in a way that I felt comfortable and confident doing communicate it in a way that I thought added any real value. And, and as she so often does, my friend Meredith Shiner wrote a piece that crystallized a lot of what I was feeling and also put it in a way that allowed me to um, almost like a conversation with a therapist kind of reframe a lot of what I was thinking and put some clarity behind some very muddled and uh, tangled thoughts. So let me first bring on Meredith. Meredith, thank you for coming back on to At The Table and for having this conversation with me. Well, thank you, as always, for that really generous introduction. And I guess, you know, every few months I have to write a piece so you can have me back on the podcast and I can remind people that I'm a person. Meredith uh, is a person, was a person, uh, and she was uh, a congressional reporter uh, between, I I mean, basically the Obama years, right? Like, that's what we're talking Mm -hmm. about, Um, which almost perfectly overlaps with the time that I spent on the White House beat. And we, for for people, this is a piece that's in the New Republic. uh, The title is uh, The Capitol Riot Killed both sides journalism and it's a piece that I would, I would just like to also let your listeners know that when i filed the piece my suggested headline was when the terrorists came for the view from nowhere um which we'll get into <laughs> we'll get into a little bit but apparently terrorist is not really in the tnr style guide mm. so there had to be a little bit of tweaking insurrectionists was i guess it's it's wordy let me ask you about why this was necessary for you because this is part of TNR's soapbox vertical. It's something that that it's clear that there was a a why there. There, there. It's a view from somewhere. Where is that? So, like you, I think these past few weeks have been really difficult. Um, watching all of the coverage from the Capitol, watching the fallout fallout from the coverage of the Capitol knowing when I was seeing the images of the house chamber, when people had guns drawn at the broken glass, pointed outside, wondering who was pointing inside, knowing some of the reporters who were in that room, knowing that whole Capitol complex as intimately as someone who works there every day for almost eight years does, it was really, really hard to watch. I was shocked at the beginning because you know, as you and I both know, when you enter those spaces, you have hard IDs, you go through magnometers, you might get wanded if something sets something off. So it was really, I mean, you get lectured by a Capitol Police officer if you're a reporter, if you step into a hallway that they don't like. So the idea that there was this massive security failure at the seat of our government, and that people's lives were in actual jeopardy, that was really hard to process. And it was really hard to process and square against the inauguration where people were really excited about the inauguration of Joe Biden as some sort of terminal 
end point for some glossy like TV special with celebrities, knowing that just two weeks before that event, the Capitol had been under attack um, and that there still hasn't been accountability. And so as I was marinating in this, as I was watching the impeachment uh, trial begin um, and to see senators sort of ignoring what happened to them, to see the president's attorneys try to gaslight not just America, but in the very literal sense, the reporters who were tasked with covering that day and then that trial, I was angry and I was sad and I was upset. And so in between like Zoom meetings for my day job and getting spit up on by my newborn, I did the only thing that I knew to do, which was to write about what I was feeling and to try to give you know, clarity and to speak plainly about what we saw that day and why we're in such a pickle. For people who have followed this conversation, they'll know that there have been a few weeks, essentially, where I, I haven't put any of these these together. And it I, I almost feel like there's an explanation owed here because I've, I've had, you know, I've had health issues that have taken me offline. I've had my own newborn that's uh, delayed things. And I don't think anyone is sitting there. Look at us being like Ted Cruz, blaming our children for our own failings. <laughs> you wanted the Ted Cruz. We, I got the reference in. We will. Before we started this conversation, I was like, can we talk about Ted Cruz and Meredith in her extremely on message way? She comes from a very comms uh, discipline household. Uh, she is a very comms discipline household all on her own. It was like, I think it'll detract from the piece if we talk about Ted Cruz and the, the meme of Ted that is Ted Cruz because he is he is basically the junior meme from Texas right like that is that is basically what I do want to talk about him at some point but I'll have I'll figure out a a much more clever way to to bring up um we'll circle back we'll circle back which we can also talk about this in the context of the fact that they're no longer airing the White House briefings which is my bugaboo but who who gives a crap um anyway look let me let me get to the conversation at hand. The, well, more about it's the meta conversation, which is I want to acknowledge the fact that this hasn't happened recently. And it hasn't happened because I've I've sat here with like my legal pad of like, here are my clever ideas for, you know, three Wednesdays in January or whatever stupid he- title I was going to give this episode. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, you and I have had enough conversations where you know that I've talked about, you know, one of my first pool duty days was the Gabby Giffords shooting. One of the, my near the end of my career at uh, my previous place of employment, I remember talking very openly about crying because Steve Scalise got shot. I mean, I am I am so overwhelmed with the way that violence has permeated, and it seems like a permanent fixture in our politics. And I just couldn't do it this time. And so I'm I'm even more grateful, I think, for you for for essentially reopening that door for me. Cause I, I couldn't I couldn't get it open. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that we are trained to do as journalists is to ask questions. And one of the really frustrating parts of the Trump era and the lead into the Trump era was institutionally, the institution of journalism was unwilling to be introspective and to ask questions of ourselves. I use ourselves loosely because I'm not really an active member of the press, but I am someone who really cares deeply about it. Um, And I I care deeply about government and good government. 
And so when we can't ask questions of ourselves about how we got here, I think that that's um, really problematic. And so that was actually sort of the heart of the piece is now that we've seen the sacred space get violated by domestic terrorists, if we can't ask questions now, when will we? If we can't call an attack on the Capitol, an attack on the Capitol, and we have to append it with Democrats allege because Republicans are gaslighting, again, their own colleagues, their own staffs, and the reporters who were there that day, when will that end? To take a step back for some of your listeners who I guess aren't as inside baseball as us, you know, there's this idea of both sides journalism or the view from nowhere that the way to be a Beltway journalist is to do he said, she said, but with Democrats and Republicans, and that objectivity comes from having zero perspective going into something. And what that has meant is Republicans who were more prone to lie, who were better at manipulating the mainstream media to advance their own agendas, were willing to inject lies into the discourse, as the Republicans say, and the Democrats weren't really forceful enough, particularly on certain issues. You see this in science conversations. This is part of the reason why the coronavirus was so bad, because this equivocation from mainstream media didn't put mainstream media in a position to check the lies of Republicans and to check the lies of the propagandist outlets who were injecting news into the discourse. And so the central question of the piece in the New Republic uh, that I wrote was just, if not now, when? When I heard the House managers ask, if this isn't an impeachable offense, what is? I mean, I wrote this specifically in the piece. You know, I asked myself, if this doesn't end and free the reporters of the chains of both sidesism, when one side Republicans contribute to an attack in which reporters almost died, what will? And so when I think about these questions and when I think about sort of my righteous indignation about what happened, I think about it in two ways. I think about it at the micro journalists level, the people who actually have to work in the Capitol every day and who might be suffering from PTSD. And I've heard from fellow colleagues that they're really, really struggling with what happened that day and continuing on in the way that they had. And then there's the issue, the macro issue of journalism and what it means to hold our public officials into account, what it means to provide a public service to Americans when we need it most. And so maybe I'll just read like two quick paragraphs, which I really think are at the heart of this issue from the piece that I wrote. Um, Reporters were among the many constituencies who thought they might die at the hands of rioters in the Capitol on January 6th. Even though the president's involvement in citing that violence is no longer on trial, the reporters tasked with helping the American people understand what happened that day along with the editors and producers responsible for their coverage, face important questions. Should journalists doing live shots from roughly the same place where they thought they might die divorce themselves from their lived experience and and from their coverage of the current group of congressional Republicans or future investigations of this riot, as if they were not witnesses to and survivors of this very traumatic case at hand? Should they pretend now that there are two sides to this story, that a retreat to the nowhere view is rational or defensible. And at the end of the day, who is actually served by continuing this approach? And I put a parenthetical here, but it doesn't need to be a parenthetical. It's Republicans. Um, 
And so like, it's just, it's so devastating to me that we can't speak these truths and we can't speak them plainly. And you asked sort of my process and my thinking. I had actually written this piece um, at the very beginning of the impeachment trial. I wrote it on Wednesday. And originally, the tenses that I had through this piece, I was basically begging reporters to use their experience and their perspective that day to actually shed more light on what happened. Um, I think we uh, conflate opinion and perspective and that perspective is valuable that like a bunch of the same old white men shouldn't be deciding the stories every day for every story that we face and that there's value in talking about your experience to bring this, this day and this darkness to light. We talk about the problem of both sides journalism and you're right that the, the people who benefit are the ones who are more willing to be audacious or deceitful or or flat out lie in a moment because they're going to get their lie printed next to something that's less of a lie. I want to I want to ask this question in two ways. One the, the the kind of cheeky way, which is to say that if the insurrection had been in any way successful, wouldn't the salizas of the world to to kind of uh, bracket some of the worst sins under one under one roof. Wouldn't there have been this like, well, Donald Trump is still the president now, and that's what we just have to accept because you know they tore up the boxes full of electoral votes, and now this is what we live in. And and the more serious version, one that I think that you'll actually have an answer to, is how has how has that process been a part? of every job that you've had in journalism because I can remember meetings with managers and editors and bosses of all types and even on job interviews where it was told this is how we do things here and it pretty closely hues to the way that you've described you know Democrats say Republicans say here's this here's that and we're done we're no longer offering perspective after that. Gosh, uh, there are so many layers to answer this question that I don't know exactly where to start. Um, I guess to your first point, I, I mean, if this was successful, I'm, I'm throwing up scare quotes here. It was successful in the sense that we didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. No, we did not. There were reporters on television who tried to say that we did, but we did not. Um, and I think embedded in this idea of both sides journalism is certainly the idea of white male privilege um, and who gets to be a DC reporter and who doesn't get to be a DC reporter. In the piece, I mentioned a New York Times reporter, Peter Baker by name, because he is very performative about the idea that he does not vote. And like the act of voting, um, he believes should be off limits for reporters, as if the act of journalism invalidates your US citizenship. Right. And so one of the ties that I make in this piece is that this is like the most violent, extreme extension of that. Like, should we ask reporters to set aside their humanity forever in their coverage of this of these politicians, these Republicans who not only aided and abetted in the attack on the Capitol that almost took their lives and in which murder the media was etched into Capitol doors, but then the vast majority of them voted for history that their lives didn't matter. 
And so I asked the question, if you're a Capitol Hill reporter, particularly if you're young and just getting started and maybe had a particular traumatic experience that day, if you're asking benign questions of Republicans who voted to acquit, like on an omnibus, like six months from now, or the debt limit, or whatever the story is a day is, like you have to understand that that dynamic is changed forever because of this day. And even if reporting doesn't change, even if, you know, journalism continues to like go on in the form that it's in, which I think is probably likely, even though I don't think that should be the end result. I think the end result will be people will leave these jobs because their editors and their producers, I was very specific about sort of going after editors, um, didn't protect them. Like the, the one thing that you need as a journalist and that I sometimes had, sometimes didn't, was an editor who's willing to protect you and to stand by your reporting and, you know, to like fight with someone if it ele- is elevated up the chain, if like someone's mad about a story. Well, okay, like this is beyond that now because you have people who were complicit in trying to get those reporters murdered and then voted to affirm for history that that didn't matter. And, you know, beyond trying to provide mental health resources for the people who were there that day, beyond like giving some extra time off or whatever reporters might need that they should be entitled to, the question of how they continue to do their jobs, I think, is a really relevant one. And so when you ladder that up to like the industry writ large um, and the solidification of journalism, where it's about point scoring, like, look, like I used to cover sports too. Like I sort of get it. Like you want winners and losers and that's fun, but that's not, that's not being faithful to the truth. That's not being faithful to good government. Like this isn't a game. People almost died. Like the thing I thought about. Some people did die. I mean, some people did die. Some people like seven people died. Um, And the thing that I think about a lot is Shanksville, Pennsylvania. I thought about Shanksville, Pennsylvania so much. Because in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, there is a memorial to the people who were on Flight 93 who crashed a plane into a field so that it wouldn't crash into the United States Capitol building and cause a mass casualty event. On 1-6, like, there was an attempted mass casualty event at the Capitol, and we're not painting it in those clear of words. And that's what happened. And so the last point that I want to make about that is that I think a lot of people rightfully called out journalism to say, well, what would coverage have looked like if the terrorists were black or brown? And I think that that's a really fair question. But I also want to add this this nuance or this caveat that I think because of the traditional conventions of both sides journalism, because when you try to pursue the truth, it might be viewed as anti-conservative because conservatives are anti-truth. Or if you try to stand with the truth of what happened that day and democracy, you're painted as anti-Republican because Republicans are anti-democratic, small d. Um, the issue is that you have reporters who I think were probably afraid to play it straight one way because of those rules in addition to some of these other cultural factors that I think were much more discussed. I have to, at some point, 
confess something to you that I don't think you're going to like. But before I get to that, I want to remind of a question just because this has percolated in every job that I've ever had. And I know it's percolated in jobs that you've had. How has this both sides journalism? Can you talk a little bit about either when you were hired or when you were looking for new jobs or when you face some kind of any disciplinary, like, is there ever a moment where somebody had to really remind you of where those guardrails are? Because I don't think that regular people who have normal productive jobs that don't involve covering, you know, Chuck Grassley understand that these are meetings that are happening every day with well-intentioned people who are, enforcing these rules that you and I agree are pretty shitty rules. Yeah. I mean, so I can speak like I'll, I have one really specific example that I think really paints this picture clearly, but I would also say just, um, again, taking a step back. When I went into journalism in 2009, and this is going to sound Pollyannish to some, but I believe it to be true. I went in because I thought that it was a public service and I thought it was the best use of my personal skills to serve the public. Um, I thought I was a decent writer. I thought I asked good questions relative to the average um, person. And I, I thought that this was a way I could contribute. And by the end of my time in Washington, I didn't feel like I was contributing anything. And I didn't feel like as one person, I could change the entire culture of journalism. And I don't mean that to like shit all over the hardworking people who are still doing it. Um, I think that there are good people who are still trying to fight the fight. I just didn't have the fight in me when I was constantly fighting with sources and editors and trying to say, I think this is a story when it wasn't. Um, But like a really great example of how dumb both sides journalism is, is I got into a fight with one of my editors at Politico. So that was my first job. That means I'm 23 years old, okay? And uh, it was during lame duck of 2010. And if you recall, there were a lot of things that Obama tried to get done in lame duck 2010 because Republicans took back the House and they took back the House overwhelmingly. Is this the Eric Schultz fight? No. No, that's stupid. Uh, This is is serious. (laughs) Because I saw there was a little bit of Twitter back and forth recently about Yeah, well, that, that was so really dumb to... and not worth anyone's time. But this is, like, serious and worth people's inter- okay. introspection. So one of the things that was being discussed in 2010 was a reversal of don't ask, don't tell, which is the policy in the military, the previous policy in the military that basically said if you were gay, you couldn't be out gay and serving our country. So... The way that Don't Ask, Don't Tell actually got repealed was in the defense authorization bill that passed in lame duck. They wrote in language that would automatically certify the decisions of the generals on whether they wanted to continue Don't Ask, Don't Tell or end Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So the language in the defense authorization bill itself did not end Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was basically saying whatever the military decides when they decide it, It shall be deemed that Congress approves it. So at the time. Which is a weird way to make laws, but not the weirdest one I've ever heard. I mean, so continuing, uh, John McCain was the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee at the time. And I'm in a scrum with John McCain 
And in my like first edition Blackberry that was basically a brick that like didn't really connect to the internet, I had the text of the most recent um, defense authorization bill up on my phone. And I asked him a question about what he felt about the don't ask, don't tell language. And in a scrum of people, he called me a liar. He said, that's not what the language is. The language would, the, the current language that Democrats want would basically um, get out in front of the generals and make a military decision before the military. And we shouldn't be, you know, undercutting generals. We should let them do their thing. And I read him the language from my phone and he goes, that's not right. That's not real. Even though it was confirmed language, it was publicly available, whatever. So I file my story and I get an edit back from my editor. And it had the quote from John McCain. And then added to it, it said, Democrats say the bill language says this. Because when I had filed it, I said, the bill language says this. And I had 45 minutes worth of fight with this editor. And I was like, Democrats don't say anything. Like, the language says, because this is the language, it's publicly available. It's on the Senate Armed Services website. This is the dra- current draft of the legislation. It is confirmed in writing that this is what this bill would do. It's not what Democrats say this bill would do. Imagine having 45 minutes of a fight over that because the Republican in this case, rest his soul, was lying about what the text said. And they wanted to hedge that by saying Democrats say. And I like ultimately won this fight in this one instance, but I think it's really illustrative of the kinds of fights that people don't have. And imagine being like 23, no, like no power, like no real authority in this newsroom, but like feeling strongly that this is what it should be. Um, and so it's sort of years of fights like that. Um, but those are like, they're small and they're additive and it's, decades worth of decisions that are like that, that sort of divorce what political coverage is from what real people experience. Um, and it, it, it divorces it from any sort of moral or real lens in the aggregate, right? It's not one singular decision that divorces political coverage from any sort of morality. It is like years and years of compounding decisions that do so. And I think it's the conflation, again, of perspective and opinion into something that's being similar. Like when you had me on your show for the first time, we talked about an opinion piece I had written about a piece of legislation based on personal experience, but also based on science and data. And I used my personal experience to help show why something was bad and wrong, but it was justified by it was it was bolstered by actual legislative text. It was bolstered by medical science, data, data, a medical code of ethics, like all of these pieces that were true and real. What I shared wasn't an opinion. It was a perspective that was based in facts that added to a dialogue on a particular issue. To put that on the same pedestal as an argument whose only merit is essentially to own the libs is not really... I, I guess I guess what, what the other part of this is bothering me is I'm remembering what you said a few moments ago about people leaving these jobs because of the trauma that they've suffered. And mm-hmm. the people who will invariably stay are the ones who had the privilege and the institutional longevity previously and who are least likely to make the kinds of changes that you are describing. 
those are the people who feel safest 100%. in exactly the rut that we're in. And it's with that I need to confess to you. 100%. And I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast. If I have, it's okay. um, the fact that I have a one-year-old now and my, my brain doesn't always work the way I thought it would. Um, I bought into the Peter Baker bullshit and did not vote for president in 2016. And Katie and I had like a what? month of fights about it because my wife, my wife, Katie, and and you obviously did not know this wow. piece of information about me. I bought in, I bought into the bullshit I did not. and I'm I thought, sure. okay, maybe Peter's got a point. Oh, He's wow. an obviously a, an esteemed colleague of whatever. And, you know, he has this and he would talk about it in the briefing room of the White House to any and all who would listen and I have to like and 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 I was also dealing with, as you know, and as many people know, a bunch of managers and editors and bosses at my old job that were breathing down my neck to be less truthful about the Trump administration incoming Trump administration or the Trump campaign at that time. And so I felt, you know, maybe this will help me. It was almost like the, the the feeling that I get is almost like like not looking at certain websites when I was a teenager. It was like maybe this will help me do the right thing, you know? Like maybe this is this is the best I can come up with in terms of justification. Oh my god! First of all, that was the most Catholic thing you've ever said That's on true. one of our conversations. That high school thing, but. I'm going to refrain from personal disparagement, not of you, but of some of the people mentioned in this line of conversation to say something that I believe firmly. People who think that they're making a political decisions don't understand that oftentimes the act of being apolitical is a political act in and of itself. Absolutely. And so it becomes and it comes from an enormous mountain of privilege. Mm -hmm. The only way I could believe that is if I thought for a moment I, I have been beating myself up about this for years. And well, first of and all, again, you shouldn't like you don't you don't need to like you don't need my absolution in this confession. I'm not sure that your one vote would have mattered. Well, uh, in the District of Columbia, like, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I think that that's really corrosive because at the end of the day, every single reporter who covers any topic has a perspective, has a life experience, has natural biases. Those individuals don't make journalism biased. They just bring their experience to the table. And I think that this was part of the argument that was baked into the piece that I wrote, which is that we should encourage that. We should value that. Um, yes. And people who are affected by public policy should be able to talk about that because they understand the impact of some of these policies on real people. So... You know, I, I I always sort of um, winced when I lived in D.C. when I when I heard that people were like, I don't believe in voting. It's shocking to me that Peter Baker, knowing everything that he knows or knew about Trump, felt like, you know what, I don't need to vote. This guy could stay and that would be fine. Or that he's that like tied to his vote that he would let that let it impact his reporting so significantly like i would love to hear him explain why he thinks it is that personally casting a ballot would influence his reporting more than 
any other thing about his life. And to me, it is the slippery slope from saying journalists shouldn't contribute to journalists shouldn't volunteer, journalists shouldn't have opinions that they broadcast in other places, and then it to to be buffeted by all of those. I'm not trying to justify it, by the way. And, and, and but I but I think fundamentally, and what I tried to bring to this piece was like, look, if you don't want to vote, like that's your choice. But like the perversion and like the tortured logic when it is applied to an event where reporters literally almost died is hugely problematic. We cannot invalidate their humanity with the infrastructure of journalism combined with the invalidation of their humanity from Republicans who voted for history that their lives didn't matter. Like, I think that that's ultimately the point that I was trying to make is that those people who work in that building every day are human. And just because they're journalists doesn't strip them of their humanity. And so we should be worried that these people feel like they can't say something is obviously true. Like the president's lawyers were buffoons. (laughs) The arguments that they presented were just like, should be put on the Mount Rushmore of buffoonery. A site that I would visit, a national park site that I would visit. I mean, isn't Trump planning like his weird, like all of the statues will include some buffoons? No, but you know, I was watching television and I was watching reporters suppressing their experiences from that day trying to like uphold the president's lawyer's arguments as if they had any basis in fact or reality. And the idea that even in that instance, they couldn't should be really, really worrisome to their bosses and also to the American people. Because I think that if you go through that experience and you were traumatized and you were barricaded in a room and you heard the rioters coming for you, and you saw the images of murder the media. I mean, I remember when the house managers were presenting their case and they were showing new video. The thing that was the most disturbing to me was the map they had. They had the diagram of the Capitol and the dots from where like staffers or members were and where the rioters were. And so you had reporters who were covering that impeachment trial, who were learning for the first time, maybe like the extent to how close they were to death. And then you had Republicans saying, well, it wasn't real or it didn't matter or it was Antifa or any other bullshit that they could gin up to justify their behavior and to like lift up the big lie. And that in that instance, reporters couldn't forcefully come out against it and them is bad. Like we are here because of it and we will continue to be here if there is no course correction. And it is, again, bad on the micro level for these individual journalists who work at the Capitol every day and will have to continue to work at the Capitol, but it's bad for the country. And it's bad because I don't think that the country has an idea of how serious this was because we're trying to still perform this like both sides thing. Both sides by the way, that has infected every other story that we talk about for, I mean, it's not, it's particularly Mm -hmm. egregious here, but this is a problem for literally every political story I have seen for as long as I've been reading. Well, and look like the Biden, the Biden administration, frankly, has not helped because they've positioned this amorphous, like a non-existent quote unquote Biden agenda as like the opposite to impeachment and accountability. Like 
the White House press secretary has said from the podium that they're not paying attention to impeachment because they're trying to move forward. Like, they lost all credibility for that argument when we learned that they spent a lot of time and energy trying to preserve a White House deputy press secretary who, like, bullied a reporter. So, like, that's important enough for your attention, but, like, the future of the Republic and a potential mass assassination at the Capitol isn't. Um, So then you have all of these, like, this framing, because the White House is dictating it, you know, like, now they can move on to the Biden agenda, or they're torn between the Biden agenda and accountability for maybe one of the worst events in American history. Um, I worry that the average person who isn't as obsessive as I am or as you or as you are, like, won't understand the gravity of this experience and that we will all be poor for it. And it is because of sort of the binds of these conventions that the reporters who are both survivors of and chroniclers of the crime can't break from. And I started with the solemnity with which I've been trying to wrap my own mind and heart around these last few weeks. And so even though I want to ask you about Rush Limbaugh and Ted Cruz, I'm not going to because, I don't know, I'm growing as a person or something. You and I are both, you know, four or five years out of, you know, three years, four years, five years out of doing this professionally. And aside from the conversations that we've each had with friends and former colleagues, what do you think someone who is who was who in those rooms and learning and is traumatized and re-traumatized if they're hearing this conversation, what, they, what, what, what must they think of us pontificating from our safe, you know, respective home offices several years out? I, I, maybe, maybe this, like the Baker thing, is kind of like me worrying too much about what other people might think years after the fact. I just, I, I don't know. Are, are we being responsible to that by trying to have this conversation? Yes. And I want you to state for the record, if you take nothing from this conversation, but what I'm about to say, please take this. And I would like you to note for your audience how emotional I'm getting when I say this. I hope that if any of those reporters listening, if any of those reporters who are there that day choose to listen, one, a lot of them have already heard from me. So it's not like I'm speaking out of turn or not trying to specifically check in with them. Yeah. But I wrote this for them because I worry and I'm sad about what their futures are going to be. I worry that they might feel like their experience wasn't real or wasn't serious. I've heard from former colleagues who have told me things about what their experience was and it has personally horrified me, but they say, well, it wasn't as bad as some of the other reporters who were there. Dealing with the Proud Boys, dealing with white nationalists, watching your place of work get desecrated, watching the people who have power in your workplace try to invalidate your experience in no other workplace in America would that be okay. And this is such an important moment and this is such an important time and at the end of the day the people who work in that building the reporters who work in that building most of them are just people who are trying their best and they're there because 
you know, some of them like the cocktail circuit or whatever, and that's fine. But like, whatever, the pandemic is taken away. But a lot of them are there because this was their life dream. Like being a reporter in Washington was like my life's dream. And even though there are things that I didn't like about it, and even though I left it, it was such a privilege. And I never lost the sense of what a privilege it was. And I just worry and I'm just sad for the people who were there and who might feel like their experience doesn't matter or they're afraid to fight for what they believe because they think that their editors have to conform to whatever is on Morning Joe that day. Like, it's just so stupid. And I ask myself all the time and I ask myself when I was writing, like, why are we doing this? Like, why do we do this? Why can't we treat serious things seriously and empower people to tell the truth unshackled from this fear that Republicans are going to accuse them of bias? Like those Republicans are never not going to accuse you of liberal bias because it is a specious claim that they've built a constituency on. So why not just tell the truth? Why not just own the experience that you had that day? And why not for history be able to chronicle what we actually saw? Um, I've been so impressed, actually. um, And I've shared my admiration personally with the team at the Huffington Post. Um, I think Matt Fuller and Igor have done like such a great job of telling the story, but also being honest about it. Because like, there's just this idea that the Huffington Post has like a little bit of a left perspective, and it might. But at the end of the day, in the world we live in, that is a perspective that's bent towards truth. And they've done like just yeoman's job trying to tell the story of what happened that day and to be honest. And it's not just the video footage on the ground, but it's how I've seen them talk about it afterwards. And I wish everyone else who was on Capitol Hill had that freedom and they didn't have to mentally dissociate from their experience that day, because I think that that will do personal damage to the people who are there. But again, it does great damage to our public and I worry for it. The last three conversations we've had I have cried three very different types of tears, and I am looking forward to eventually doing joyful tears with you again, because we have had those in the past. I remember what those feel like, but until we get to those, I am so grateful for the friendship and for the perspective and for really helping me untangle this, this mental block I I just, I don't want to be as angry as I am about how this is. But you're right that the, the option of letting it slide and just pretending like this is normal is not a possibility. Mm-hmm. So um, I look forward to more of these conversations and happier ones as well. Uh, Meredith Shiner is is a good friend and also a re- congressional reporter from most of the Obama years. Um, she's now in Chicago with her with her family, and uh, not a week goes by that I didn't, even in the pandemic, that I didn't wish you were a little closer. Um, thank you again for writing this. The piece will be linked in the description of this episode, and I hope people take the chance to read it to reconsider why both sides journalism is in general awful and specifically to this moment, to this story, as hurtful as Meredith has explained, because she has explained it perfectly.
Thank you so much. Thank you, Jared.